Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come, come in. You know you are welcome on a night such as this. Look, clouds scudding, air breezing swifter than air should. Wind chills well below zero Fahrenheit. And yes, yes, come. We have coffee, tea, hot chocolate, warm cinnamon cider, and treats both sweet and savory. So, doff your wraps, find a chum, and snuggle. We've got tales to tell. First, evil child that I am, I utterly omitted mention during your visit last week that this month is Women in Horror Month. Well, there it is. I am bad, and I beg your indulgence and offer profuse apologies. Thus it is, this week, you will be treated to two stories by two women, Diane Auerbuck and Lillian Chernica. I believe you'll enjoy them. Before we enter into the worlds those women have offered up for us, remember a few weeks ago, well, a few months ago, actually, I asked you to consider voting for Tales to Terrify in the annual This is Horror Awards. Well, actually, I begged you on bended knee. That was for Podcast of the Year. Well, the awards are out, and let me read them to you. Novel of the Year was Dr. Sleep by Stephen King. Benjamin Percy's Red Moon was runner-up. Short Fiction of the Year was Interstate Love Affair from Three Miles Past by Stephen Graham Jones. Runner-up, Gary McMahon's Nightsiders. The short story collection of the year is Fish Bites Cop, Stories to Bash Authorities by David James Keaton. Helen Marshall's Hairside, Fleshside, 
was runner-up. Anthology of the Year is The Booked Anthology, edited by Peta Villa and the boys from The Booked Podcast. Runner-up was The Best Horror of the Year, Volume 5, edited by Ellen Datlow. Publisher of the Year, and so well-deserved, is Joe Meinhardt's Crystal Lake Publishing. Chizine is runner-up, and congratulations to you, Brett. Magazine of the Year, The Horror Zine. Jeannie Rector, editor, The Venerable Cemetery Dance, is runner-up. Graphic Novel of the Year is Lock and Key by Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez. Runner-up is Colder by Paul Tobin and Juan Ferreira. I'm not sure about the pronunciation of that, so my apologies in advance. Event of the Year is Fright Fest 2013. Runner-up, World Fantasy Convention 2013, of which... I was a member, but to which, alas, I was unable to go. Rats. That was in Brighton, England. I miss it still. Film of the Year is American Mary by the Suska Sisters, Jen and Sylvia. Runner-up, Evil Dead. The TV series of the year is American Horror Story Asylum, with The Walking Dead as the runner-up. Soundtrack of the year is Roque Banyos's score for Evil Dead. Runner-up was Marco Beltrami's score for World War Z. Video game of the year is The Last of Us. Runner-up, Amnesia, a machine for pigs. Sometimes I wish I were a gamer. Alas, I am not. Artist of the year is Ben Baldwin. Congratulations, Ben. Runner-up is Joey Hi-Fi. And the Tattoo Artist of the Year is Matt Oddboy Barrett-Jones. Runner-up is Piotr Diedel. Am I pronouncing any of that correctly? I have no idea, and my deep apologies to Piotr and his family. And Podcast of the Year, uh, well, runner-up is last year's winner, booked, congratulations, booked, And the notice has gone out on the web, so there's no point in being coy about it. The podcast of the year is Tales to Terrify, last year's runner-up. Last year, Chicagoan Livius Needon and Rob Olson, Chicagoan 3, were utterly gracious about having won and about us having not won. So, back at you, neighbors. We should all get together sometime, throw back a few. So... Congratulations again, guys, on coming close this year and for having the booked anthology voted Anthology of the Year. One does not edge out the mighty Ellen Datlow without bringing forth some seriously chilly literature, I think. Well, look, I don't effuse well, especially at a remote. See, I learned about our having gotten the award a few weeks ago and was sworn to silence by the This Is Horror editor-publisher Michael Wilson. Michael asked me to send him a statement about the matter, and here it is, more or less as written, and it is for you. Having crawled hand over hand down from the ceiling by way of the window frame and the drapes, I am now back at floor level and tapping away to thank all who voted for Tales to Terrify as podcast of the year during the This is Horror Awards season 2013. So, 
Thank you, children of the night, and thank you, all the several hundred authors, poets, artists, musicians, editors, academics, other podcasters, puss-cats, and ghost hunters who gave of your life force to make this weekly telling of tales possible. Specifically, thank you, Cher Eves and Laura Neelis, and Dee Cunniff for organizing, for shuffling, and keeping the work flowing, and thank you, Tony C. Smith, producer and father confessor to all who live and work in the District of Wonders. And thank you, listeners. And thank you, those who voted. And thank you, little gray and black dragon, who has lived beneath my bed since 1948 and has kept me happily frightened of the dark ever since. As Tony would say, I am chuffed. And, of course, thank you to Celia Santoro for sitting quietly, spending time looking at the back of me, and tiptoeing about the house during recordings. Thank you, and thank all of you, for everything. So, Tony, is it time to start working on Tales to Terrify, Volume 2? Hmm? Okay. Fiction. We have a short piece to begin the night. It's by Diane Auerbuck. Diane is a South African novelist whose Gardening at Night won the 2004 Commonwealth Writers' Prize for Best First Book, Africa and the Caribbean. Gardening at Night, by the way, was also shortlisted for the International Dublin Impact Award. In 2011, her short story collection, Cabin Fever, was published by Random House Strick. Her novel, Home Remedies was published by the same publisher in August of 2012. Until 2002, Diane Auerbuck taught at Rustenburg Girls High School. Her nonfiction has appeared in The Mail and Guardian. She also regularly publishes reviews, essays, short stories, et al. And the dissertation for her doctorate, The Spirit and the Letter, Trauma, War Blogs, and the Public Sphere, was published in 2012. Here is Diane Auerbuck's Mami Wata. Look, he said, while she was still panting behind him on the path. Their shoes had crushed the oils from the fine books as they went and the smell settled sharply in her skull so that she remembered being sick as a small child, with her mother propping her up like a doll and rubbing Vicks on her back with warm hands. Her head ached with the tension of holding the past and the present in place. He was touching the cliff face. Here! Trillions of quartz shards were embedded in the rock, shading from transparent to the deepest brown of the earth, all blinking out from behind his fingers. The girl was sunstruck, wanting to hold his hand. She sat down instead to free her gritty feet, alert to the flapping of his board shorts. He stood with his back to her, looking at the water, and then he jumped in without waiting. He surfaced and called back, his voice echoing in the empty space. She shook her head. The water was only warm near the surface, she knew that as soon as her arms or legs sprawled out, they would go numb. She thought, people have drowned here. 
She could see it as if it had already happened, the shout that was equal joy and fear, the boy's board shorts billowing out, the flat impact, his body bobbing face down, the distressed air trapped in the material. How could he just jump in like that? On the floor of the dam there must be layers and layers of powdery quartz that no light ever reached. When the dam was made, that great heart had been uncovered, but it only sank down again slowly in hundreds and thousands, glittering and recast itself. The secret of the rocks was that they built themselves up again over the centuries. It was impossible to imagine men with machines excavating this place, making space where before there was matter, sinking pylons and pillars to feed the holidaymakers and retirees, multiplying like algae over the town below. We have no idea where our water comes from, she thought. There could be anything in it. We just turn on the taps and put our mouths to them. The water was very dark. The boy looked like he was swimming in coke. It swirled reddish around his shoulders while his limbs tapered whitely off into points. She watched him stroke out heavily to the other side of the dam, still splashing, taunting her. He hauled himself up and clambered over the old bones of the jetty that sagged into the water. The planks creaked and sighed under his weight. The river changed from red to brown in the dam and then to green and blue as it ran towards the sea. One day it would take the jetty away with it. When the wind died in gusts at sunset, she thought of the wood rotting softly, leaning into the water. Every morning she woke up and wondered if it was gone. The boy was heading for the jumping rocks, the successive platforms where you threw yourself screaming into space. She shrank as he ascended, inserting his fingers into impossible crevices, insinuating his toes. As he went, he doubled over his own tracks, starting again from the straining jetty and jumping from higher and higher rocks, keeping his arms tucked close to his ribs so that he entered the water cleanly. He was bolder each time, trying to recall the exact places he had jumped from when they were teenagers in Hermanus, trying to leap back in time. Once he fell backwards, and her heart plummeted with him until she understood that it was deliberate. Every time he came up again, whole and alive, replicated. His wet head reappeared, then his chest. He pinwheeled his arms and stretched his red grin at her. The water levels must have changed, he called out. See how they've dropped here. He flung out his arm again and she saw the line of green against the sheer white rock, the residue of childhood summer. The new shallows were endlessly cold, impenetrable. He kept splashing at her, laughing, so that at last she slipped in and paddled near the edge for a few minutes, avoiding the skeleton of the old pylons that poked out, rusty and jagged. She ducked her aching head under the water and opened her eyes wide as she always did, searching for whiskery weeds, for anything that might brush curiously against her thigh. The face that swam briefly up to hers had no lips, no nose or eyes. The small silvery scales that covered it were peeling back like a second-hand snakeskin bag, and the hair floating out from the skull was stained rusty red from the tannins in the water. 
The girl, without thinking, drew in a shocked mouthful of river water. She felt her throat close in protest. The thought of that water inside her body choked her. She flailed to the surface, trailing bubbles in the murk, and the thing whisked back past her, scales scraping against her hip. She stroked for the sight of the dam and tried to push herself back onto the rock face, but it resisted, crumbling in her grip, and she had to force herself out by the power of her biceps so that she grazed her torso again in her panic. She sat on the rock, shivering and hugging her knees, while the water streamed off her and flowed back over the rocks into the dam. The hairs on her body tried to stand up in their follicles. The boy had tired of diving. He swam back and sat next to her for a few minutes while they crouched like rock rabbits, and her heart slowed its hammering. I should warn him, she thought, but the walls of her throat felt bruised. She swallowed and began. There was something... I think, he said. She stopped and deferred to him. You go. He fingered a pebble. We're thinking the same thing. She waited, the iron taste of the water coming back up. We should see other people. The pebble clinked, given back to the rock. What did you want to say? Nothing. She got up and walked back along the path alone. The quartz glinted wherever she looked, blinding. That night, she went to bed early, itching in the raw places on her skin, watching the moon with the windows closed so that the baboons wouldn't get in. She waited to fall into sleep, the way the boy had fallen into the dam, happily, trusting that it would be dreamless and ordinary and complete. But she couldn't unclench her fingers from the wakeful cliff. Somewhere outside the house, beyond the mountain scrub, the jetty was leaning out further, slowly splitting its sides. The bed squeaked as she swung her legs off its edge. She felt her way to the other room with her bare toes, her feet slipping a little in the puddles on the parquet floor. The watery track soaked reddish into the wood. It led all the way out to the cement patio where they'd baked during the day like lizards, lazy and jewelled with sweat, and where in the evenings they had watched their meat blistering over the coals. In the darkness where he usually made a humped outline, the boy's sleeping bag lay empty. She lifted it, ducking down into the sweet smell of his old sleep. She inhaled and held her breath, and she heard the faint effortful dragging sounds outside. As the creature went, it slipped and sighed, its burden sometimes catching fast on the buhu. The scales on its tail twinkled like quartz in the moonlight. The boy's eyes were blank. When it reached the jetty, the last planks disintegrated under its monstrous skittering weight, and the creature plopped back into its element, replete. The splinters floated away on the current. Thank you for that, Diane. By the way, since we're talking awards tonight, 
The International Impact Award, for which Diane Auerbach was shortlisted, is one of the richest literary prizes in the world, 100,000 euros. How may one get one? Well, the award is a joint initiative of the Dublin City Council and the productivity improvement company IMPAC, I-M-P-A-C. It's administered by the Dublin City Public Libraries. Nominations are submitted by public libraries worldwide. IMPAC has been described as the most eclectic and unpredictable of the literary world's annual gongs. With regard to the long list for 2004, Michelle Pauley from The Guardian posed the question, where else would you find Michael Dobbs and Tony Parsons up against Umberto Eco and Milan Kundera for a 100,000 euro prize? Well, Mami Wata was narrated for us tonight by Graham Dunlap. Graham is a software solution architect and a voice actor living in Melbourne, Australia. He is the sound producer for the horror podcast Pseudopod. In addition, Graham hosts the young adult podcast Cast of Wonders. You can find him on Google+, and he occasionally tweets as at Kibitzer on Twitter. Thank you, Graham. I hope you'll come back for more. Our second story of the evening is by Ms. Lillian Chernica. Born in San Diego, Ms. Chernica is a genuine California native who currently resides in the Santa Cruz Mountains. With her dwell her husband, two sons, and three cats. In her biography, Lillian says she discovered the little golden books of fairy tales at age five. And from there, she moved on to the works of Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, Tanith Lee, and Terry Pratchett. Her first short story sale, Tonight's Tale, Fallen Idol, appeared in After Hours and was later reprinted in Dawes' Year's Best Horror Stories 20. Ms. Chernica has gone on to publish stories in Dawes' Year's Best Horror Stories 21, 100 Wicked Little Witch Stories, and Horrors. 365 Scary Stories. Her Christmas ghost story, The Family Spirit, appeared in Weird Tales number 322, and Maeve appeared in number 333. Miss Chernica has also published an historical romance novel, Ship of Dreams. Here, then, is Fallen Idol by Lillian Chernica. I watched her while I ate my sandwich at a table in the mall. The gang of hipsters and emo kids around her did nothing without her approval. She never smiled. She never spoke. Only a faint nod or a limp gesture, but the gang responded as if they were commands. Her face, that was what really caught me. I could do a series of portrait photos on that alone. Her paleness made her black-painted lips stand out harsh and strange. Her eyelids were silver with the faint blue shine of bad meat. She'd shaved her eyebrows, then painted lines like barbed wire over her dull eyes. 
I was in the mall covering a fashion show held by one of the major stores to kick off a new line. The models were so many bits of clumsy flash next to this girl. Girl, woman, hard to tell. Her bizarre makeup hid her age. After watching the models float around in bright spring florals, I was drawn to the maze of black cloth around her. A high-necked ruffled blouse, tight black leather miniskirt, black stockings ending in little boots with pointy heels. Over it all, she wore a coat with immense shoulder pads, its hem brushing her boots. Delicate gloves hid the fingers that held a cigarette whose smoke stung my nose with strange sweetness. Excitement made me gobble my sandwich. After years of covering fashion shows and garden parties, taking mother and baby shots for the feature pages, I wanted something wild, something dangerous. Here she was. The paper paid me well enough. But I was a guy who wanted more. My hands itched to snap her photo, to catch her in other costumes. Her gaudy clash of face and clothing could make a modern Mona Lisa. I chased her for a week, haunting them all and using a telephoto lens to get as close to her face as possible. Six of her faces were proofed and protected in a small album inside my backpack, next to my camera. She never wore the same face twice. Not one of the faces ever smiled. At the end of the week, I sat watching her through a screen of ferns, my coffee cooling in front of me. Today she was done up like a zombie parrot. Her face was dead white, her lips blackened in a shape that mocked Betty Boop's kiss. One eye was ringed in black, the other leaked painted tears. Again, she wore nothing but black. She was a true artist, knowing the right backdrop for the paintings she wore. Every day toward sunset, she would appear here, taking a table near the food counters where she would sit and smoke. The emos and hipsters would find her and begin their complicated games of boredom and gossip. Their glances at her and hidden whispers, a way of paying homage to her superior outrageousness and consummate ennui. Their obvious fascination took on the nature of worship. If she was grateful, it never showed. Another week yielded more faces, each unique. I stayed up late in my dark room every night, examining the day's catch. Other assignments got shelved while I compared a black eye on a flesh-colored cheek to that eerie blue shimmer leaking tears onto smeared rouge. I couldn't wait to see her and the next day's ingenuity. I debated showing my many-faced lady the album. Would she be flattered? Angry? I wanted to light a spark in those empty eyes. I thought of her while I lay in bed, wondering where she was, what she was thinking. My eyes made shadows into her long hair, dyed that dull black so popular among her worshippers. Not once had I seen even an inch of her naked skin. She was always hidden by black cloth or heavy makeup. I had no idea what color her skin might really be. I wanted to watch her strip, see her shed the black layer by layer, revealing her own skin while my camera caught every naked inch. Sleep would not come until I decided to force some reaction from her. If the old superstitions were true, 
I had a lot of power over her. Thirteen faces, thirteen different souls. I intended to count them all. On Saturday, I waited outside the mall for her, just before closing time. The crowds dwindled and the parking lot emptied. Lights went out inside. Gates came down over the doors of the shops. She had to come out this door. It was closest to the food counters where she held court. Another ten minutes passed. Security guards checked the door and locked it. I felt the rising sourness of disappointment. The way back to my car felt impossibly long. I was halfway to it when I heard the peculiar sound of spike heels on cement. The red spark of a cigarette caught my eye. There she was. She walked straight across the parking lot, weaving in and out among the few remaining cars. I paced her, trying to keep my own stride slow and casual. She lounged on the bus stop bench, still smoking. The night deepened around her. The evening breeze brought me that sweet smoke like her singular perfume. I went to the opposite end of the bench and sat down. She didn't look over, just stared straight ahead and smoked with that curious determination. Hello, I said. No response. I unzipped my backpack and pulled out the album. She had to react to it. I flipped it open and held it out to her. I have all your faces. Those cadaverous eyes swung around. She stared down at the open pages. Four of her faces stared back. Her painted brows rose. The black pucker of her mouth fell open. At last, her eyes met mine. They're good shots. I turned the page. I took several. Have you ever considered modeling? Another page and four more. None the same. She reached out toward the album, her hand shaking. Then she snatched her hand back, leaped up, and ran. I stuffed the album in my backpack and charged after her, fumbling with the zipper. She ran toward the mall's loading bay. Few light poles lit the area. The gaping mouth of the only open bay doorway loomed ahead of us. The shadows reached out to her. I lost her for a moment in the blended darkness. Then the shower of sparks from her thrown cigarette told me where she was. I ran for the doorway as she vanished into it. The bay was a cavern filled with boxes and crates. The few yellowed bulbs burning high above cast a feeble light. Hey, I called. A chorus of echoes answered. Don't be afraid. I'm a photographer. I just wanted to show... Metal screeched off to my left. Something came flying at me of the gloom. I fell to my knees, hugging the backpack to protect my camera. Overhead, a thick chain whistled past. I scrambled over to a big box and crouched there in the dark behind it, trying to quiet my ragged breathing. Her heels clattered somewhere ahead of me. I followed the sound, moving farther into the maze of crates and boxes. I eased the zipper open on my backpack and pulled out the Swiss Army knife I kept inside. It was handy for tightening screws or opening film boxes, but right now its blade could serve a more defensive purpose. If she wanted to play rough, I was ready. I crept forward, listening for the sound of her heels. At a crossroads in the narrow aisles, she darted past, the tail of her long hair flashing by. 
I lunged forward, trying to keep her in sight. Echoes told me she ran down another aisle close by. I followed, turning the corner into an even darker and tighter aisle. Cardboard rasped. A weight hit my shoulders and flattened me. The heavy box pinned me. My legs were bent, oddly. Thank God the camera wasn't under me. Her little stiletto-heeled boots tiptoed around the corner. I twisted my head to follow them, but the box blocked my sight. Hey, are you crazy? Get this off me. Something jerked my left arm. The backpack straps were tangled around it, cutting off circulation. She tugged harder. I heard the zipper give an inch or so. She fought with it. Good thing it was partially wedged under the box with me. Listen, I can get you reprints. Who are you? Talk to me. Her silence was scaring the hell out of me. The tugging and zipper noise. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Stopped. Pain stabbed my knife hand. I twisted my head around to see the heel of her boot digging into the back of that hand. Her gloved fingers reached down for my knife. I clung to it, pulling my hand back as far as I could. She stamped down again and wrenched my fingers free. The knife vanished upward in her grip. Real fear chilled me. Maybe she was insane. More tugging on the backpack and the rasp of the knife on the straps. She was trying to cut it free. I kicked out, fighting to shove the box off me. It was too heavy. I couldn't drag the backpack any closer. My left arm was nearly numb. The straps slid down it a few inches. I strained to grab them with my right hand. She was not getting my camera. The loud clang and roll of the bay door closing filled her horrible silence. The wrenching of the backpack stopped. I heard the knife hit the cement floor. The clatter of her heels faded as she ran. I let out a long breath... Sucked in another. My heart hammered, and sweat slicked my palms. Now I had to get out. With much grunting and scraping, I managed to roll over partway onto my back. That gave me enough room to shove the box upward inch by inch, working my knee up under it and wedging it between the walls of the aisle. I worked myself out, dragging my limp arm and the backpack after me. I snatched up my knife and staggered down the aisle to retrace my way to the door. 
Full night filled the bay with darkness. Even the dim ceiling lights had been turned off. A narrow rectangle of faint light showed me where the door was still open a little. I hurried toward it, weary of ambush. She'd need a cigarette after going so long without. I sniffed the air, watching for that red glow, but that oddly sweet smoke had vanished with her. Out in the parking lot, I leaned against my car and tried to calm down. Sense told me to find another project. Sense told me to stick with the bread and butter work at the paper. Another part of me whispered, This was my chance. She was wild. She was dangerous. I pulled out the album and flipped through it, marveling again at all her different faces. She was gifted to think up so many and execute them with such precise skill, and the flair she had to parade her art in such a bourgeois setting. It was too late to listen to Sense. With every face I looked on, my fascination with her grew. The first answer would have to be, where that bus took her, I'd start there. On Sunday, the mall closed early. I waited in the parking lot, watching from inside my car. I had my knife in one pocket and in my backpack a flashlight big enough to double as a club. The gas tank was full. The sun went down. Parking lot lights flickered and lit themselves, pale hallows, shining against the gathering dark. Shoppers poured out of the mall. Again, she was the last one out the door. She reached the bench and smoked a steady stream of cigarettes until a bus pulled up. She stepped inside the steel body, and it rumbled off. I was out the driveway and behind it before the bus got too far away. It wound its ponderous way through the city. Stores and residences began to thin. The occasional neon of a bar sign lit otherwise blank rows of buildings. City noise faded, leaving me with the audible screech and hiss of the bus brakes. On the dingy outskirts of the industrial zone, the bus pulled up beside the sign marking the isolated stop. The last passenger aboard. She stepped out the back door and took off down a straight stretch of sidewalk. An empty parking lot was just ahead. I parked, watching the bus make a U-turn. So this was the end of the line. I shouldered my backpack and went after her. She was a block ahead. She kept walking, on and on, through the pools of darkness between streetlights. I followed, feeling the hum of the overhead power lines in my bones. No cars passed, no dogs barked. We were alone. No fear or anxiety hurried her, a woman on her own in this concrete desolation. She turned in at a gravel drive, which led through a rusted chain-link gate hanging crooked on its hinges. I stepped lightly on the gravel, begging silence from my battered Nikes. A small shed offered cover. I ducked behind it. She stopped before a large warehouse. In the glare from the single street light by the gate, all I could see was cracked wood and a litter of debris. No metal shone through the dark smears of rust. She crushed out her cigarette beneath her boot and walked around to the side of the building. Ringing thuds carried through the stillness. I ran across the gravel to the warehouse, hoping her noise would cover mine. A door opened and closed, its hinges crying with rust. I inched around the corner. The metal stairway up the side of the warehouse was empty. 
I eased up the stair and listened at the door. Nothing. The stairway continued upward. I started up, hoping for a skylight. More gravel and splintered boards lay everywhere on the roof. Air vents thrust up their squat, rusty squares. I stepped carefully around them. One bad board, and I was in serious trouble. I prowled among the skylights. Those that weren't boarded over were too dirty to see through. The sound of voices made me freeze. I crouched behind a large vent. The sound grew, the thin whisper of several voices. I peered over the chill metal's edge. There was no one up there but me. I glanced down. A faint streak of light shone between the blades of the enormous ceiling fan inside the vent. The voices rose. They were coming from inside. Their whisper grew to a babble. They talked over each other all at once. I couldn't make sense out of their increasing clamor. Beneath the voices I could hear something else, a sound like a guitar badly out of tune. It had a coughing, chugging quality, more like someone pounding on a calliope rotten with age. I strained to recognize it over the babble. Laughter, cold, ugly laughter. I crept on stiff, cramped legs to the stairway and inched down each step, fighting the panicky urge to hurry. Every step took me closer to the door. I prayed it stayed closed. I did not want to meet whatever made that horrible sound. Crossing the gravel was an agony of slowness. At last, silent concrete led me to the comfort of my car. I slid behind the wheel, dropped my backpack on the seat beside me. For a moment, all I did was sit there. I switched on the car heater and fired up the engine. Calm, warm, away from the weird scene happening in the warehouse, I started to think again. Now I knew where she went after holding court at the mall. I knew she was afraid of something to judge from her reaction to the album. She was strong, could be crazy, might even be mute. She might live in that warehouse, along with whatever made that god-awful noise. I shivered again, thinking of it. Sense nudged me again and told me this was likely nothing more than a group of aspiring actors rehearsing together. The paper had run a few articles on the movement among the homeless who created collections of stories and art based on their experiences. The warehouse could also be a drug hangout, a shooting gallery where she met more of her bizarre crowd. Or the voices could be just another obnoxious type of punk music. My curiosity would not be bought off. The weird makeup was becoming almost a side issue now. More than ever, I wanted to know more, to know her name and hear her speak. Most of all, I wanted inside that warehouse with a pack full of film and my camera. There was a story here, and good stories always meant good photos. There was only one thing to do. The next night I waited until 8 p.m. to be sure no after-hours business might keep anyone in the neighborhood. The mall would close at 9. The bus would drop her off around 10. I had until 10.30 at most. This could be the only chance I'd get. If she heard me last night, she might panic and run for another hideout. I parked my car in the same lot. The only lit windows were three blocks back. The door off the stairway was jammed shut. 
The lock was so badly rusted a key couldn't turn in it. I twitched at every shadow, scanning the land for some clue about what to do next. The landing was clear, but for a two-by-two split down the middle. I picked it up. It fit through a large crack in the door. I pulled upward, felt it bang against a crossbar. A hard jerk upward made the crossbar hit the floor inside. The door opened. The dust was as thick as shag carpeting. Smashed crates and smaller debris had been pushed against the walls. The flashlight's beam showed me a path worn through the dust. It led me back into a far corner where a rickety cane chair sat by two small crates piled to make a table. A smudge of blue glittered against the splintered wood. Next to it was a waxy blob of hard red. Makeup. None of her clothes were visible, hung up or piled nearby. Seeing their total blackness would have been a trick anyway. No mattress or even a pile of blankets showed whether or not she lived here. Broken glass sparkled on one wall when I turned. I walked toward it, stepping over small piles of wood and plaster and found the windows. No wonder it was darker than the inside of a cave. The windows weren't just clouded over with age and dirt. They had been painted over in thick black paint from the inside. Even by day, no light would penetrate here. Uneasiness made me step back too quickly. My foot came down on another pile of rubble. I slipped, flinging out my empty hand. It closed on a fistful of old cloth. A large curtain hung down beside me, so huge I couldn't see the top or the other side. It rippled, disturbed by my frantic grab. The returning air billowed with dust and the stink of rotting fruit, sweet and awful. I fumbled around until I found a cord dangling beside the curtain and pulled down on it. Rusty screeching ripped the silent gloom. I jumped, heart pounding, and nearly fell again. I steadied myself against the windows and gulped the dusty air. Just some old curtain hooks. Nothing dangerous. The sweet stench was stronger, making me cough. Row upon row of pale oval shapes reached up into the darkness, cloaking the rafters. I ran the beam of the flashlight over them. Faces glared at me from eyeless holes. I sprang back. When they stayed still, I reached out to brush one with my fingertips. It felt a little like clay, more like wax. The face bore the frozen snarl of a kabuki demon with red eye holes and a black slash of a mouth. A mask. The breath whooshed out of me and I grinned a little at my silliness. I touched it again, guessing it to be some hybrid of paper mache. I touched more of the masks, some down by my knees, others so high I had to stretch on tiptoe. Some were dried and crackling like autumn leaves, others smooth and pliant. A faint nausea stirred in me when I touched them. I wrote it off to that sweetish reek. One mask wore the Betty Boob kiss. I dug out the album, flipping through and glancing up at the masks I could see. Here and there were the elements of her parade of faces. So this was where she got her inspiration. It must have taken her years to collect so many. Why keep them here, at risk from damp and decay? I had one answer, 
but a dozen new questions. The whispering began. I shut it out. My imagination was overworked with raw nerves. I raised the flashlight to see the upper rows of masks. Their lips were moving. Fascination conquered my jolt of fear. I played the light over the faces, watching their expressions change with the things they said. Keeping my eyes on them, I set down my backpack and the album, then pulled out my camera and flash attachment. Both were worth gold right now. I had visions of a Time article on this lost hoard of ancient art. I needed better light, but I didn't dare risk missing this by hunting for a switch. I ached for a camcorder to catch both the mask's sound and movement. Time probably had somebody on call who would know what weird language they were speaking. I could see no electronic rig, no power cables. The on-off switch must be hooked up to the cord I pulled. The flash was ready, and the focus all set when I heard another noise behind me. The sound of stiletto heels. Nightmare fear clamped my muscles. I spun around. The plank she swung caught me across the side of the head. The last thing I heard was that awful Calliope laugh. Pain pulsed through every inch of my skull, threatening to split it wide open. I tried to get up. Nothing moved. I strained, blood pounding. Dizziness caught me in an endless backward tumble. I went limp and let the vertigo pass. Something tight pinned my wrist. I tried lifting the other. Same thing. My ankles, too. I was tied to something hard and flat. A strap bound my forehead and another clamped my mouth. The smell of old seatbelt made me want to gag. Two desk lamps blazed down into my eyes. They were angled down from behind my head, letting me see past my feet. More lights were on, illuminating the wall of masks. My eyes opened wide despite the painful light. Hundreds of masks reached up to the rusted girders in the ceiling. Every higher row held masks cruder than those below, less stylized and far older. On them, the quasi-papier-mâché was brown and cracked, making their designs impossible to see. Then I spotted her. She sat at the makeshift table and stared at me, crushing out yet another cigarette. She smiled. It was a slow stretch of muscle, empty of any human warmth. Those dead eyes stayed cold. I shut my eyes against the sight of it. Thank God I never got that on film. I'm so glad you woke up. Her voice was full of odd clicks and slidings, like marbles gargled in oil. She fired up another cigarette. You were very brave coming here. There are those who fear to walk in my shadow. Behind her, the masks chanted, a low rumble of old thunder. The album sat next to her on the table. She picked it up. One by one, she pulled out each photo and tore it to pieces. Then she yanked the film from my camera. You wanted these? Bits of photos sprinkled through her fingers to the dusty floor. And even those? She tilted her head at the chanting masks. She drew on the cigarette. Its red glow shone in her eyes. You came to steal. Thieves die quick deaths for lesser prizes. But you? It has been too long since I have spoken. She smiled again, running one fingertip over her painted cheek. 
Did you touch them? They feel like leather or rice paper or old wax. Do you know the worth of what you sought to steal? Of course not. But you will learn. Oh, yes. She turned to the table and snapped on the lights of a small portable makeup mirror. My neck ached from straining forward against the straps. I kept straining, anxious to see what she took out of a small metal case. She raised her hand. Metal flashed. She drew the thin piece of metal across her forehead at her hairline, down along the edge of her cheek and jaw. She tilted her head to do the other side of her face. She wiped the metal on her skirt and laid it aside, then stood up and walked over to me, bending close. The harsh light showed a bloody line edging her face. I cringed back against the plank. She leaned closer, forcing me to see only her. Then she grinned, bearing teeth stained by tobacco and worse. Her breath stank like the wind off a sewer. She put finger and thumb to both temples and tugged downward. Muscles and veins stretched and throbbed as her skin peeled away. My muscles cramped with the need to get away from her. Bile flooded my throat, gagging me. She freed the straps and forced my head sideways. I coughed, spitting over the side of the plank. Keep breathing. We can't have you dying now. Look, I gasped. You've had your fun. I'm sorry if I trespassed. Just let me out of here. You can keep your secrets. Just let me go. You lie, little thief. You see your fortune made by using me, telling your world all about me. Do you think you are the first? She dangled the flayed skin in front of my face. I jerked my head aside, more bile gushing into my mouth. I think I will allow you the answers you seek. You know art. You recognize the skills I possess even in these poor times. She went back to the table and bent to lift something out from under it. It was a thin plastic mask, a mockery of a human face, the kind on sale for a few dollars at Halloween. She arranged the flayed skin over it, then lifted a spray can from under the table. She shook it, then sprayed the skin. She turned the bloody ruin of her face and grinned at me. I flinched, eyes slamming shut. Fixative, she said. When I first began, there were no such marvels. My works would just rot away. Such a waste. Her works? My mind clawed its way back from the horrid implication. Row upon row of them. Not the source of her inspiration, but the evidence of it. She carried the rigid skin to the wall, hanging it among the lower masks. The higher ones decayed in that rotting smell. I shoved away the frightening answers. This was no kinky goth. She was insane. I see you begin to understand. They are all mine, all parts of me, my only solace. What about the kids at the mall? Maybe I could talk my way out of this. The paper had run an article on a woman who escaped rape and probable death by getting her attacker to talk out his violence. My little friends? Poor substitutes for past glories. She picked up her chair and sat next to me, close to the lights. I had to watch her, had to be alert for her next move. But I shrank from every glimpse of those dead eyes bulging out of the raw meat on her skull. Why wasn't she bleeding? 
whence there were temples in my honor, priestesses to offer sacrifice, priests only too glad to maim themselves in my honor, an army of assassins making daily offerings, bringing me new worshippers. She sighed, exhaling the stench of old blood. The altars were never dry. The fires, the chanting, the screams. I miss it. This is what I am reduced to, imitating the games of children with no real blood lust. I wanted to go to England, to rip the pulsing heart from their smug queen, to take vengeance for my servants slaughtered to the gods of their morality. Yet here I sit, chatting with a frightened thief. I cannot even raise a proper pyre in this modern barn. The whole place would go up. I cannot risk my faces. They are my only believers now. She sighed again. I held my breath, turned away. Look at me. I fought until I thought my neck muscles would snap. Yet my eyes opened and my head turned. Instead of raw flesh, I stared at scabbing which grew as I watched. A little longer and you will see a fresh canvas for my paints. Do you know me yet? Have you guessed that I cannot do these things and be human? She threw her head back and laughed. The sweat froze on my body. Of course, that hideous laughter was hers. She stared down at me, a slow grin cracking the scabs. She ran her fingertips across my forehead and down my cheek. Why, little thief, you have given me an idea. She hurried over to the table. The metal flashed in her hand again. She carried it back and sat down. You tried to capture me in your little box. You want more than my faces. You want my soul. When my word was law, such arrogance would have you dragged bodily to the temple. My priestesses would lash you to the altar and rip the skin from your body, hacking off that dangling bit of flesh you men are so proud of. Then your chest would be split open and your beating heart flung on the fires to appease me. The faces roared their chant, filling the warehouse with the echoes of their fury. She smiled on them, then raised a hand. They quieted, their chant the pulse of an enormous heart. I am tired of living like a beast, alone and unworshipped. You chose to invade what little peace I had. I could simply kill you, little thief. She stroked my hair. My skin crawled from her touch. And yet, you have brought me a gift. I see now I do not have to be alone with only my own faces. Those stupid children will delight in the lesser of my rights. When time comes, they will join my present worshippers. How am I to reward you when all you deserve is agonizing death? I screamed. I kept screaming until my throat was raw. There would be no talking her into untying me. It had to be near morning. Somebody had to hear me. My editor knows I'm here. I told my girlfriend where I'd be. Let me go now, and I won't even call the police. If you don't, silence. My voice died in her throat. Even the faces shut up. She glared down at me, looming taller and more ferocious than the body she wore. My soul begged to run from the unholy rage flaming in her dead eyes. Know what all who meet me know, little thief. I am the destroyer.
All that is created comes into my hands. You are mine now, as surely as the skin I wear. For you, there is no hope. She dragged the seatbelt back over my mouth and lashed it tight. She stood back as I thrashed and kicked against the bonds. No belt gave even a fraction of an inch. Why such fury, little thief? My gift to you is one many have died to obtain. She held up the glittering metal, a scalpel. She sliced across my forehead. I screamed, arching up against the merciless straps. The pain was hot and sharp. She cut downward through my cheek. Red wetness dripped into my eyes. Blackness smothered me. Dirty yellow light. No more straps. No feeling at all. Chanting all around me. From me. Through me. Over and over. Words whose meanings I don't know. I can't stop chanting. Below me, she crouches over the body, still tied to the plank. She lifts her head from her feasting and smiles with her bloody mouth. Too long since blood has sated me. You have your reward, little thief. I am first among her new worshippers in a new row on the wall. Thank you for that, Lillian. In addition to fiction, Lillian Schernicke has written a considerable amount of nonfiction on the subjects of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. She's been a columnist for Speculations, writing The Fright Factory and The Writer's Spellbook. Her controversial column of literary criticism and short fiction reviews, The Penny Dreadful Reader, ran in tangent, earning praise from such leading lights of the field as editor Ellen Datlow. Fallen Idol was narrated for us tonight by Pete Falico. As a teenager, Pete says he wanted nothing more than to become a full-time disc jockey. His dad wanted him to become an educator instead. Studying the human voice in college seemed a happy medium, and a 36-year career as a speech therapist ensued helping people communicate during the day while playing jazz recordings at night on a local radio station, soon became a comfortable compromise. Currently, he is one of the hosts of Evening Jazz on KCSM, the San Francisco Bay Area's jazz station. Along with his radio broadcasts and home studio podcasts, Pete has been involved in the voiceover business since 1985. He's been the voice of many Silicon Valley software companies, as well as the narrator for numerous documentaries. Pete is the founder and executive director of a nonprofit organization called the Jazz Organ Fellowship, and that's at www.jazzorganfellowship.org. And he is the owner of his own record label, Doodlin Records, www.doodlinrecords.com. And all that will be on the Tales to Terrify homepage. Well, a half.
happy night tonight. Two great stories, some excellent news, and I hope the treats, the warming beverages, and the chummy snuggles were up to snuff as well. Now, I would have you be upstanding, follow Mahler to the sink to stack your bowls and cups, and then to the wicker sofa to gather your gear. Lair yourself up, that's the trick. Especially when that first night blast reaches for you and sucks the breath from your lungs. You know, we should arrange for transport, I suppose. But, alas, that is not in the budget. So, tonight, you walk. The wind off the lake might steal your breath tonight. But such goth folk as you might see abroad out there in the dark and the wind will doubtless be as cold and uncomfortable as you are, and, of course, will be of the same flesh. Doubtless. But, of course, one can never really tell, can one? So best keep to yourselves. Keep your heads down until you are home, until you are warm and in your bed, and drifting off to where there are pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Productions at their website www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening. <laughs>